What's that, Vin? Why, it's the recognition of my fellow man. Oh. Where are there free men today, any more than there were in the 9th and 15th centuries? Front door, Gladys. Look, when the lords held all the land, passed out what they wished to their vassals. Look about you, what have we? As pure a feudalistic state as there ever was in the 9th and the 15th centuries. I tell you, when I think about it, I'm appalled, genuinely appalled. I tell you, Father, when I think of the class system that exists in this country to... What is it, Gladys? Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched the winner of the 1942 awards, Mrs. Miniver, starring Greer Garson. Yeah, and I I mean, I guess they're both sort of related in the sense that both of them are films ostensibly about the world wars, but... More from my personal reaction, this one really reminded me of All Quiet on the Western Front. This is a better movie than it's hitting me as, because I do not need this movie in my life this week. <laughs> but I don't think it's as good as All Quiet on the Western Front, but it's certainly not a terrible movie. And like I can give some objective accounting of how good it is because it's a movie about people who are forced to sit and watch and not really take action as the world collapses around them. And I don't, I don't like it. No, Susan, thumbs down. (laughs) Uh, wow. You had a really different reaction to this movie than I did, which I think is an interesting thing to talk about. I don't think that you're wrong exactly, but my takeaway was less these people are sitting around while the world collapses around them, unable to do anything about it. And more that up until about 10 minutes before the end, it is very much the keep calm and carry on British story. Oh, for sure. Mostly, I felt like it was, if not inspiring, at least until those last 10 minutes, anyway rather comforting because it was like yeah okay everybody has to just kind of sit tight and go through these mandated by the government things in order to survive but everything for the most part seemed rather happy now that's not necessarily me saying that the movie is good because i do think that greer garson and walter pigeon's family and their friends and their town seem to have it really really good and also not have any problem at all with things like air raids and various buildings in their community being destroyed everyone's always smiling and like oh at least we're with each other which is a weird tone and it definitely makes those last 10 minutes hit really hard but in a way that almost feels cheap and manipulative hey i know we've made everything sort of okay until now i hope you're ready for the punch in the gut (laughs) yeah i think there's a little bit of it before then Uh, to me i think one of the things that made more than just the last 10 minutes hit me pretty hard is a thing that maybe i just wasn't paying attention to Is it ever explained why Walter Pigeon sounds like Walter Pigeon in this movie? Because ostensibly he is a British man, correct? I don't know. 
I mean, maybe she just had a Canadian husband. <laughs> I have no idea. If you have never seen Walter Pidgeon in anything, he's basically the prototypical 50s sitcom dad, mm-hmm. is what he sounds like. And he plays that in this. And honestly, I don't think that's a bad choice or anything, but it created this sort of uncanny sense of trying to feel like everything is comforting and stable while the world exploded. <laughs> that was like, this is a put on, right? You're really freaking out all the time because no one talks like this as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> that is a huge criticism, actually, that I have of the movie, at least in the beginning, is no one talks like anyone in this film. <laughs> That is extremely true. The other thing that makes me feel uncomfortable that I am much more comfortable saying is an intentional thing by this movie is that the Mrs. Miniver of the title spends less time being active in the plot than a flower named after her does. (laughs) She's very much an observer of everything going on around her. But also I think that that's something that you can sort of identify with. At least I feel like I can right now. Oh, for sure. And like Greer Garson does great work with it, that it gave me this anxiety of like, why won't somebody do something? World War II is starting. And there's nothing to be done is the answer. We are watching people where there is nothing to be done, but sit and stay calm and not take some weird panicked action. Didn't hit me with this specific phase of quarantine quite how the creators intended, you know, 70 years ago. that's, That's fair. That's fair. Actually, it's 80 years now, isn't it? Jesus. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Math aside, I can definitely understand why it hit you in the way that it did. So I guess we should talk about the plot so that people have any idea of what this is. And I don't feel like we need to go through every single little moment. This is very much a slice of life kind of thing. And there's a lot of little moments that aren't necessarily all that important. And then there are ones that are actually, well, they should be quite important, but then they don't really go anywhere. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the amount of time we spend on that fucking flower show. Greer Garson plays Kay Miniver, who is the Mrs. Miniver of the title, and she's middle class, but comfortably so, and lives in a little town or hamlet or whatever outside of London. Uh... She has a husband whose name is Clem. They have three kids, two of which are young and completely unimportant. And an older son who's at Oxford, whose name is Vin, who, when we first meet him, comes home from school and is all like, dialectical materialism. (laughs) Class struggle. I read Marx for the first time. Yeah. He does become less insufferable, though. Yes, but his very first scene is... I forget what exactly he does with the maid, but it's really close to never interrupt me while I'm talking about class, Gladys. (laughs) And he gets called out by his instant love interest, who is this girl named Carol, who is... The granddaughter of Lady Belden, our stuffy, upper-crust British aristocrat character. Who came straight out of cookie-cutter central casting. She is basically every character that you could ever imagine fits that description. She is Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey and all of the others that have been in that vein. And I love that character. (laughs) Generally. 
Like, I probably would hate them in real life, but I always find them to be really hilarious on screen. I like her just fine. She's just the most beamed in from another movie character in this film. There is this weird sliding scale of realism in this film. Where some people are really sitting in the sort of psychological distress of everything happening to them, and other people are sort of playing cookie-cutter stock characters. And it's a weird vibe. To the movie's credit, it isn't completely derailing the film or anything. But it does create some weird interactions where people from, like, different realities essentially are talking to each other. Yeah, I feel like that's very true, actually, with... Vin, the older son, because when he sort of waltzes in talking about class struggle and how England is still basically under feudalism, it definitely feels like where did this guy come from in this movie? Because up until that point, it's basically been Mrs. Miniver and her husband cheekily spending money they maybe shouldn't by buying fancy hats and a nice car. Yeah. And then that happens and we're in a whole different world. The introduction of Carol and Lady uh, Belden also gets us to, um, screen time wise, the most important plot of this film. Which is, there's an upcoming flower show, and for the first time... Someone has entered a competing rose in the rose competition that Lady Belden always wins. And that rose, even though it wasn't grown by Mrs. Miniver, is named Mrs. Miniver because the local station conductor that grew it has an extremely weird thing going on with her. Yeah, (laughs) their conversation where he tells her that he's going to name the rose after her, it was straight up creepy. And it doesn't go anywhere. But I was like, is he going to try to hit on her or like touch her in a weird way? Or what is happening? In a Dickens novel, legally, he's her secret father. Like if you spend that much time talking about a woman and not. Right, exactly. (laughs) She's actually an orphan. So she thinks. Yeah, yeah, basically. But instead, it's just like, oh, Mrs. Miniver, just like the movie. So that becomes why Carol's over there in the first place to ask them to ask the station guy to d- withdraw the rose. And the flower show becomes like the weird central point of act three of this movie where the Dunkirk evacuation <laughs> happens off screen. <laughs> It becomes sort of the central focus, which I don't think is actually a terrible choice, because this is a movie about people trying to continue to live their normal life under very strange and straining circumstances. But it is a wild way to organize this movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it also feels like this goes on for a really long time. It's very early in the film that the Rose gets named and he's going to enter it in the competition and very late in the film when the competition actually happens, yet it sort of weaves in and out forever. (laughs) At least it feels that way. Yeah. Which makes the time frame of the movie very confusing to me. I would agree with that because like, actually, historically, this movie seems to take place over the course of about three years. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because before the start of the movie, the war has not been officially declared. France has not been invaded. By the end of the movie, the Dunkirk evacuation has happened. 
the town is utterly used to bombing runs, and we're at the point where sort of most of the suburban sprawl, even though that isn't what it is, most of the sort of non-major urban areas of England are even being targeted, like most of the villages, which is fairly late in the bombing. I mean, maybe not three years, but definitely two. Yeah. Because Germany didn't invade Poland until 1939. Dunkirk was spring of 40, and the Blitz went on until 41. So, yeah, it seems like two years. Does the flower show only happen biannually? Also, why do I care this much about the flower show? (laughs) Well, because the other things we have to care about are Vin, and honestly, fuck Vin. (laughs) Like, he gets better, I admit that, but he has the most specificity in that first scene where he's insufferable. And then after that, he kind of becomes this cliched, marked-to-die, tragic son character, where the twist is he doesn't actually die. But that is still the role he plays. Everyone treats him that way, everyone talks about him that way, he acts that way for the whole rest of the film. Right. And then the father goes off to the Dunkirk evacuation. But as I say, uh, there's a very stirring scene with a bunch of boats where they talk about, if you do not know about the Dunkirk evacuation, a bunch of civilian ships were involved in this operation to evacuate people across the channel from Dunkirk. Like in an actual military engagement, there were all of these civilian ships that were just drafted into the operation. Uh, but not drafted because they weren't forced. They just volunteered, tons and tons of them. And it's a very compelling story. We'll hear more about it in about 10 years when we cover the movie Dunkirk. Right. While I was watching this, I kept Uh, thinking, (laughs) is Dunkirk just a companion piece to Mrs. Miniver? I mean, you could certainly do a cut where you watch the first, like, 40 minutes of this film, then watch all of Dunkirk, then watch the back hour and a half of this film, because that's it. You hear the big speech about, like, hey, this is going to be super duper dangerous. None of you have to do this. I want you to know they're going to shoot at you. Um, good luck. And everybody is like, yes, steadfast, Britain, haha. And then that's the end of it. 20 minutes later, the dad comes back and is dirty and is like, whew, that was a whole thing. And then you just never hear about it again. Yeah. Speaking of something else you never hear about again. <laughs> yes. The German pilot. <laughs> yes. So while the Dunkirk evacuation is happening, Kay is alone in the house, Mrs. Miniver, and a wounded German pilot somehow ends up in her garden, comes into the house, basically threatens her with a gun, and she is really kind of nice to him and feeds him some food. He passes out from his wound. She calls the police, tells them that this guy's got to go to the hospital, and he wakes up enough and is like, yeah, the Third Reich is going to come and kill all of you. And she says, well, but we're not bad people and he says yes you are because you oppose us and he's sort of threatening i guess i mean i think the thing that's threatening there is that up until this point he is so exhausted so wounded that he never really poses that much of a threat to mrs miniford and that there is this sense a little bit of like oh we're not so different after all we're all going to find our human connection underneath the big national struggles of this war. And he just snaps her right out of that. He's like, no, I hate you. Others like me better than me will come and destroy everything you love. I will kill you. 
the fact that he is even as this sort of cornered animal that she is trying to reach out to and find some human connection with that full of hatred is the thing that shakes her and terrifies her more than I think the idea that Germany really is going to win the war. Right. I know that there is later in the film and what probably was the Oscar reel with Carol, but that to me ought to be the Oscar reel. It's the most compelling section of the film in my mind. It's what kind of rises it above being just a stiff upper lip propaganda film, Mm -hmm. which, you know, to be fair, it's propaganda film against Nazis. There are much worse things to be in the world. The point of this movie for large portions of it are, look how unflappable all these people are in the face of all this. We're going to get through it. We're going to defeat Hitler. It's going to go great. America's here now. Britain held the line and here we come is the end of this movie, basically, literally. Right. And that is the thing that rises above the sort of expected beats of that into, holy shit, it felt a little bit like Grand Illusion to me, but with the reverse (laughs) moral. Right. That it was searching for that underneath the fog of all of this. There is our shared humanity. And then just, no. (laughs) No, not always. I found that deeply compelling and thought it was Greer Garson's best performance work of the film. Yeah, I mean, I think she actually does a pretty good job overall in this film, but the character that she is given is generally chipper and bright and charming and unfazed by most everything. So I guess showing any crack in that veneer feels like doing more heavy lifting than it really is. I think it's sort of asking something of her that... Let's get to the end, because I think I sort of need to explain the end of the plot of this movie to explain what I'm really talking about. Mm -hmm. After this, to sort of lighten our spirits, the husband gets back from Dunkirk and the son arrives back from his first engagement. He's signed up to the Royal Air Force. And he flies back and, like, lets his engine sputter a few times, which is how he said he was going to let him know it's him. And so after this sort of down moment of the German pilot screaming at her and freaking her out, her family is reunited and everything is momentarily okay again. Vin and Carol get married, which I agree with the stuffy old Lady Belden is a terrible idea, (laughs) mostly just because Vin sucks. Also because there's a war on and he is very likely to die, which is her actual argument, and not, he sucks, your your son sucks, Vin is terrible. But they go off to their honeymoon, and Carol ends up in another very good scene, because like whenever Gergerson is, like you say, given anything to do, she's very good. There's sort of this quiet moment between Carol and Mrs. Miniver of Mrs. Miniver going like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Your life together is just starting. And Carol's like, don't bullshit me. My husband will probably die. I know it. I'm fine. And you're like, whoa. Yeah, I think Teresa Wright, who plays Carol, is actually really good and is doing some of the better work in this. Yeah. And like, this is, I think, a section that made me personally feel very uncomfortable But it was very good because it's where everyone continues to get to do stiff upper lip stuff. Right, right. But you can tell they're being shaken. There's a very long sequence where they're in the shelter during a bombing run and their parlor is destroyed and they are talking about Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. My favorite moment of Walter Pigeon in this movie is where Walter Pigeon is explaining the gas filter in the shelter. And goes, 
Do you see this? If this turns green, that means that there's gas outside and we need to shut the vent and that'll shut off the gas. And <laughs> Mrs. Metaver is like, and then what? And he goes, and then we suffocate. <laughs> um, it is played as an incredibly dark joke. He knows what he's saying, but it is the most compellingly like, well, what are you going to do? And that's sort of the vibe of this whole section. There are no good answers, but we're going to do the correct routine through the no good answers. Yeah, he also has another funny dark joke where they get back to the house and, you know, the roof no longer exists or the ceiling on the parlor. And he says, oh, we'll have to tack something up there to keep out the light. Yeah. (laughs) Not like... Half our house was destroyed. Oh my God, let's freak out, which would be normal. But oh yeah, we'll just, we'll do a little redecorating with some cloth or something. (laughs) Yeah. And then we enter the third act of the film, which is the flower show, where we spend a just bizarre amount of time on if Lady Belden will use her influence to intimidate the judges into letting her win a rose contest that she knows she should lose or not. And she ultimately decides to announce that Mrs. Miniver, the flower, has actually won, and everyone is very, very proud of her. And in a way, that makes her the real winner, as much as the creepy train guy. And then, in the middle of this flower show, air raid sirens start. And the entire town takes to Lady Belden's cellar, uh, except for Kay and Carol, who have to go back to the Miniver estate or home or whatever, uh, because they left the kids there. And on the way, Carol is shot by one of the planes and dies. And we get to Greer Garson's real, like, Oscar reel performance, which is her reacting to the death of her daughter-in-law. And it's fine. It is what it is. It's a very melodramatic 1942, this is the most tragic thing that's ever happened to me performance. And she's very good. Yeah, I think actually the part that's even more interesting and requires more talent is not the being upset about her daughter-in-law being shot and eventually dying, but when they're driving home and she has to drive really slowly and she's worried about the headlights, but she really needs to get home. And that tension that she's able to create with her performance, where it's just a close-up of her in a car, and you feel every bit of that, is great. Yes, and that's what I was sort of trying to say about the German pilot stuff. Right. Carol's death is the very big, showy, like, I'm acting as an actor performance thing of the film. And I'm sure is probably why she won. Right. But I think the much more compelling performance moments from her are these small little lived in moments of, you know, similarly, she does a lot of business. She's always sewing or knitting in the shelter. And she does so much compelling little stuff that lets you know when she's nervous or shaken in the shelter with just doing little business around that. It's the good version of all of the incredibly overwrought sewing nonsense from, uh, shit, the Betty Davis movie where she's the murderous wife, uh, who was having an affair. Uh, the letter. Yeah. Yes. It actually is showing character work through this small bit of, of business instead of 
loudly announcing, here's what I know about you because you sew. <laughs> <laughs> like the letter. <laughs> yeah. The performance, I think, is extremely good because it's full of little moments like that in what could be this thankless role with one big moment uh, very easily in somebody else's hands. Mrs. Metaver just drifts through this movie and then has a huge breakdown and still wins an Oscar because having a huge breakdown is what you win an Oscar for, like, 60% of the time. <laughs> 60 to 90, yeah. Yeah, somewhere in that range. But then, then comes and underlines... Ah, I was the one you thought would die, but instead, ironically, it is her who has died. And it's fine. Like, it's certainly much less compelling than every other part of Carol's death, including the very powerful, very propaganda-y final scene where the village assembles in the bombed-out church to talk about what's been lost and what they're going to do and how we're going to beat Hitler. It is yet another closing speech that is just put in its entirety on Wikipedia. Oh, is it? Yeah. Fully, almost half of the plot summary is the last 10 minutes of the movie because the villagers assemble at the badly damaged church where the vicar affirms their determination in a powerful sermon. Then full two paragraphs of that entire sermon... And then they just sort of talk about the last shot of the movie where the camera tilts up and a bunch of planes fly overhead. That's actually the last two minutes of the movie because I, yeah. I checked the timestamp when Carol gets shot. That's 10 minutes. That's exactly 10 minutes from the end. Fair enough. But yeah, the camera tilts up and planes fly overhead to go kill Hitler and onward Christian soldiers starts playing. <laughs> And let's go. The World War II in the real world has started. Let's go. So, yeah. End of film. Yeah. It's heavy handed. <laughs> this is certainly above like a five. Like, I'm, I'm, when I'm saying like, I don't know how good this movie is because I don't really want it. <laughs> it is a question of like, is this a good movie or a very good movie? I don't know if I know. Because certainly Greer Garson gives a good performance. Certainly there is compelling stuff in the stiff upper lipness of this film. <laughs> but I also am just like, uh, it's also very long. It's like 216 or something. Oh, yeah. It's very long, but weirdly, despite the fact that there's not a lot of action, I didn't feel bored. I did not feel bored, but I definitely did feel the length of this movie. It is not a, like, God, how is there 40 minutes left of this movie? But it was a little bit of a, like, 40 minutes left of the movie, huh? Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Again, which maybe argues for the film in a weird way, that I don't want to sit in a thing I really shouldn't want to sit in for another 40 minutes. But that that was sort of my reaction to it. I think also part of the reason why I didn't get bored is Greer Garson and Teresa Wright, the two Mrs. Minivers, were very good. I think Walter Pigeon was very soothing. <laughs> and I kind of just wanted to know when the thing was going to happen. 
And then it turned out that the thing was the flower show, so I thought, and then the actual thing happens 10 minutes before the movie is over. But the tension that they built, particularly around Vin, where he goes off and joins the Royal Air Force, and you're just sure that any moment is the moment where he's going to die, and then you're going to have Kay Miniver comforting carol miniver and that's going to be the rest of the movie and they're going to be you know the mother who lost her son and the woman who lost her husband and then it doesn't end up being that but that's kind of what i was waiting for the whole time i think and i feel like that it subverted the very obvious expectation i think that's actually kind of impressive because we don't have a lot of subversions of expectations yet in movies. <laughs> that is very fair. This is a very sort of baby's first subversion of expectations. But by 1942 standards, that's some Sixth Sense-esque mind-blowing shit. Yeah, right. Like, oh, it was the wife? <laughs> yeah. <gasps> oh, what? This movie, by the way, was apparently my grandmother's favorite movie, which I found out from my mom when I told her what we were watching this week, which I find really interesting. And it came out in the United States anyway, when her husband, my grandfather, had just gone overseas for World War II. And I can see it being comforting for someone who is experiencing that. And also... I can see it being something that would make women feel like, oh, look, we're also important and we also could be in danger as well. Because there's some level of heroicism that is granted to Carol for dying, <laughs> which sounds really fucked up and dark. But there is. Yeah. Of course, the Germans didn't bomb the US, but in 1942, you know, obviously people in the United States were concerned about that. Yeah, certainly. And I forget what year it was. It may have been 42. There was sort of famously this summer where everyone in L.A., every time a plane flew over, was just like, they're here. Like, they're, we're finally being bombed. It's happening. Right. And f flipped the hell out. Yeah, my Greer Garson story is that her second husband was uh, Vin, her son in this movie. Which is a thing. Whoa! Uh, but her third husband, uh, yeah, her third husband was a Texas oil man. And so she spent a lot of my mother's childhood in Fort Worth when my mom was living in Dallas, which really only was in any way related to my family in two ways. One is she's a big donor to SMU where my parents met at grad school, and specifically a big donor to their arts programs, and the other one being that my grandfather met her once and tried to hit on her. <laughs> I am in no way surprised by that story. Yes, apparently very effectively. Apparently he was like, may I kiss the hem of your garment, which was a thing that you could do in the 60s, and people were like, sure, that doesn't make you sound like a serial killer. I'm into that. You could do that in the 1960s still? Apparently. He had a theatricality about him that made it like this is a throwback thing and I know it. I hope it was relatively early 60s. Because if we're talking miniskirt time. <laughs> uh, no, God no. That's a very different request. <laughs> Even if it was, I don't think Greer Garson in the 60s was wearing a mini dress. Like that does not quite seem like. No, she was born in 1904. <laughs> Right. Does not quite seem like the vibe. But those are the big Gergarson stories is she was a big deal in Texas for my mom's generation. 
And apparently there's a sequel to this movie, which I think is wild. What? <laughs> it's what? Eight years later, they made the Miniverse story, which has Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon reprising their roles and has completely different actors as all of the kids. The two younger kids have safely returned home from service in the war. And one of the completely indistinguishable kids from this movie, who I imagine they distinguish between in the sequel, is the one that's going to get married. Like, there's some drama about, oh, they're in love with an American. Like, are they going to stay here or go across the pond? It will shock you to learn, was neither critically nor financially as successful as this film. No. <laughs> yeah, the last paragraph of the plot summary is, no mention is made of the eldest men of her son, Vincent, who appeared in the earlier film, possibly because Greer Garson and Richard Ney, who played him, had married and been divorced by the time the men of her story was produced in 1950. Yeah, apparently they got divorced because he was morose and critical of her acting. So... Essentially, he was himself in this film. Yeah. He was also 12 years younger than she was. Which I always kind of like. Oh, yeah. I have always been... But of course he was morose. He was a teen. Oh, yeah. He's... He definitely has the... God, what was the Twitter thread about? If you take the opposite of a manic pixie dream girl, you get a depressive demon nightmare boy. Yes. And then, thank God that's not a thing, picture of Kylo Ren. <laughs> He's got big depressive demon, uh, uh, damn it, I fucking lost it again. But he was like 26 when they were married, so, you know, yeah, of course he was all sulky. Also, he has no right to be critical of her acting, because she is a million times better than he is. Oh, for sure. Which is probably why he eventually gave up being an actor and became like an investment banker. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, which is probably why he was critical of her acting, which also accurate. Yeah, that too. So I guess we should rate this movie since we've now talked about all of the other things surrounding it. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I want to hear your rating first, because I'm going to kind of take cues from you, because like I say, I feel like my radar is off. Uh, I'm going to say a seven, which is that this is a really good, solid movie. I feel like it has some good acting in it. It's long, but not boring. The cinematography is at times even better than just solid. Nothing in it is wildly artistic. And I don't feel like, you know, it's not Grand Illusion. It lacks what for me brings something up to an eight or above, which is that it's doing something that has never been done before and perhaps has not been done since. But it's a totally solid, good movie that I think, at least what we've seen so far, deserves to be the best picture of this year. It's just this year is kind of disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with all of that. I think my first impulse was a six, but I think the longer we talked and the longer we talked about Greer Garson's performance, the more I felt six is a little unfair to this film. So I'm fine with a seven. And I... This is another in our should you watch this movie? Uh, you could watch this movie. No one is stopping you. <laughs> I don't think I would go full on into a recommend, but I don't think that like your life will be, you know, again, my argument would be maybe not in quarantine right now. 
I don't think your life will be significantly worse having watched this film. I don't think that it's a terrible use of your time, but there are better uses of your time. Would you? Does that make sense? I would agree with that. I don't even necessarily think you need to watch it. I mean, it's generally pleasant other than the heartstring tugging bit at the end. Yeah, it doesn't really hold a lot for me as far as, you know, this is an incredible achievement in the history of film. Like, it's fine. Oh, yeah. No. It's even good. It's just, there's a lot of good movies. For sure. And hopefully next week we'll get one, though it is a notoriously fraught film. (laughs) Because next week we are watching The Magnificent Ambersons. Which is our only real competition, I would say. The only thing that really on this list strikes me is what could take it. I mean, there's other stuff that seems fine, and maybe something will be weird, like maybe Talk of the Town will be great. Yeah, or, you know, Pride of the Yankees. Probably Talk of the Town, though, right? I mean, like, if we're being honest, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) Probably of those two, right? We we have a suspicion which one could be our breakout star, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to say the one with (laughs) Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, and Ronald Coleman is probably going to take it, but I do like Gary Cooper. That's fair. But yes, I'm very interested to see Magnificent Ambersons because, yes, it it famously got torn apart in the edit room by the studio. I'm interested to see how much that reputation is earned, how much that reputation is Orson Welles being, shall we say, slightly creatively prickly famously. (laughs) (laughs) It was apparently his favorite movie, and then he always talked about how it was destroyed so... Is there like a director's cut that we should not watch? Do we even know? No, famously, the studio destroyed all the footage they cut. It is impossible to reconstruct Ah, the director's cut of Magnificent Ambersons. And so Orson Welles has always said, yeah, it's fine, but I had the director's cut was better than Citizen Kane. They ruined it and made it just another family melodrama. Apparently, critics are very divided about whether just another family melodrama made by Orson Welles is still a great fucking movie, or he's actually right, it is just okay, um, or or what. But famously, they cannot find the footage to reconstruct a full director's cut of Magnificent Ambersons, and we will probably never get one. Well, I mean, if they destroyed the footage, then yeah, we won't. Uh, Yeah, but it's one of those, maybe it's in a warehouse somewhere things. They cannot find the footage. It is not officially archived, but they do also have like warehouses full of old film somewhere but like with each passing day the it's a whole thing which i only know because a short story nominated for the hugo about 10 years ago was about a guy who went through a portal to an alternate universe where the only thing different was film history and he strikes up a romance with the girl at the video store in this alternate universe because the magnificent ambersons is going to be the director's cut is finally getting released and he's like no i'm fairly sure that's not right and the two of them sort of trade back and forth their versions of film history it's a very compelling story whose title i will find and have for you next week excellent and until then this was a movie yeah that's just that's that's what it is on this one no caveats this was a movie plus or minus this was a movie <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Very good. We'll put to sea at once. Smaller boats without compasses will endeavor to follow in the wake of 
larger ships at the head of the line every moment counts good luck to you